OA, OA, Meta, Budo. OA, OA, Meta, Budo. OA, OA, Meta, Budo. And so OA, OA, Meta, Budo is a mantra straight from the heart of the Thai Force tradition. And it's a mantra that actually invites in, that calls in support and benevolent energies, seen and unseen. And so I wanted to call them in, but even more than that, I'd like to invite us all to call them in in whatever way you call in the deepest support possible, the most boundless benevolence possible through this heart, this body, this mind, this practice that's unfolding, we each have our own lineages and ways of doing that. And so you might want to join your voice with me in the mantra, or you might do it in your own way. But my teacher would say to me, Heather, there's more support out there than you know. Heather, use the mantra, O A O A Meta Budo. Heather, the first words of that mantra are root syllables said across the planet. He would say, Heather, O A O A is a sound that babies make. Fresh minds. Meta, filling the space with kindness, Budo, filling and pervading the space with awake. So we'd say, Heather, practice OAOA Meta Budo often. And so I have all these years, but I've never shared it here. So I'm sharing it here. So I'll do it three more times and you can join me or call in your own benevolent energies in whatever way you see fit. O A O A Meta Budo O A O A Meta Budo O A O A Meta Budo Sadhu I can't prove it, but I can feel the space smiling somehow. Awake. When I shared the story in the last talk about the Four Noble Truths, about the Buddha's journey right after Buddhahood, up to the point where he reconnected with his five friends and offered the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. There was one part of that pilgrimage, of that story of his integration of awakening that I did not include. It's one of my favorite parts, so I wanted to include it tonight. As the Buddha was walking barefoot, wandering by stages from Bodhgaya to Saranath near Benares, or now Varanasi, 160 miles. When he was deep in the Ganges Valley, he ran into a, yet another spiritual practitioner, uh, ascetic practitioner. And they had this interesting exchange. So I'll read the translation done by Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano. It's from the Majjhima Nikaya, the words of the Buddha of this story. And so the practitioner's uh, name was uh, Upeka. Upeka. And Upeka said, basically, they met on the road, two wanderers. And the Buddha shown something forth. And so the question to the Buddha was this, who are you, friend? Your face is so clear and bright. Your manner is awesome and serene. 
Surely you must have discovered some great truth. Who is your teacher, friend? And what is it exactly that you have discovered? The newly awakened Buddha replied this, very bold. I am an all-transcender, an all-knower. I have no teacher. In all the world, I alone am fully enlightened. There is none who taught me this. I came to it through my own efforts. And so then the question back to the Buddha was, do you mean to say that you claim to have won victory over birth and death? And the Buddha replied this, Indeed, friend, I am a victorious one. Now, in this world of the spiritually blind, I go to Benares to beat the drum of the deathless. And here's what the other wanderer said in reply. Well, good for you, friend. And he shook his head as he went, and he left by another path. Nice knowing you. Good luck to you, friend. Going over here. Right? So the Buddha learned a really important lesson there that led to our being benefited by him actually during the last stages of that wandering on his way to Saranath to developing the map of the Four Noble Truths. So he didn't just meet his friends and go, I'm fully enlightened, that's the end of it. He realized that maps might be important, that techniques might be important. So that's an important learning for him in his integration, and uh, we are definitely the beneficiaries of that learning. Fast forward a couple thousand years. Well, we can do that in the timeless space of this retreat, I think, at this point. We'll fast forward a couple thousand years, and we land in the forests of Thailand. And in the forests of Thailand, late 19th century, around the turn of the 20th century, there was a transition going on, a, uh, a new inspiration, a process of innovation going on in the Theravadan tradition. It was a process of innovation that arose in response to uh, an extreme And the extreme it arose in response to was an extreme of over-intellectualization of the teachings. The meditation itself was being lost. People were losing trust and faith that actually awakening was still possible this far down the road from the Buddha's enlightenment. So it was a pivotal point in the Theravadan tradition and specifically in Thailand. And um, during that time, there was a practitioner, a monastic practitioner, and his name was Ajahn Sao. And I imagine that he had a similar moment as Siddhartha did uh, before he became the Buddha when he was practicing one way, and he suddenly realized, I think the way that I'm practicing is too, it's, it's not the right way. It's just not the right way to practice. It's a little bit off. And he asked this all-important question that I ask myself often in my own practice. Siddhartha did. He asked himself, he said, might there be another way to move towards awakening? And I imagine that perhaps Ajahn Sao had the same question. Here's what's been presenting to me in terms of what's possible in practice. Might there be another way? Might there be more than that? We can each ask ourselves these questions in the face of our own conditioning. Our beliefs of what we think is possible in this practice and what we think is not possible. Is it true? And so he went into the forest and started practicing a very, very strict renunciate condi- um, tradition that continues to this day in a lineage of Thai forest masters. Ajahn Sao was the teacher of Ajahn Mun. Ajahn Mun was the teacher of Ajahn Chah. Ajahn Chah was the teacher of my teacher. So 
all of these lineages are being passed on from human being to human being in formal ways and in informal ways. It doesn't have to be a very traditional formalized lineage. It can be as simple as a teacher in your life has shared something or you've shared something in their presence and all of a sudden everything something shifts and all of a sudden that being becomes part of our wisdom lineage. So this process of moving out of the over-scholarly in the Theravan Thai tradition back into the forest, back into very, very simple, strict, but open practices simple yet profound, out of the head and into the body itself. And then from that transition and the inspiration that so many found out of the carriers of this re-emerging lineage, it moved to the West, and Ajahn Chah empowered Ajahn Sumedho, an American, to go to England which happened in 1976 and opened the monastery of Chithurst. Right? And then this living lineage has come to the West, and we've been working with it with our own Western wisdom and sophistication and understanding. Because when these traditions move from culture to culture, they hopefully include the best that each culture has to offer and start to release some of the cultural conditioning that's no longer necessary one of the biggest transformations that's happening in this lineage at this time, influenced by Western culture, is the bringing together of equality of the genders in the monastic tradition. It's a very, very powerful time that we're in. And the Western monastics are leading that. So my connection with this tradition, this is is my heart lineage. The first interaction that I had with a monastic from Thailand turned out to be uh, my most influential and, and he became my most influential teacher. And his teacher was Ajahn Chah, whose teacher was Ajahn Mun, whose teacher was Ajahn Sao. Soon after I met my own teacher, uh, I ran into some folks that you may have heard of or know, uh, Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano. And I ran into them under what I now understand were very unusual circumstances. I didn't really get this at the time. Because at the time, I was in my mid-twenties. I was already teaching Dhamma, um, in family contexts, to parents, to teens, and to children. And so I actually had the opportunity for a decade to teach every year with Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasano, all ages. So if you can imagine this, just to put a little perspective on the diversity of programs we offer here at Spirit Rock, this very meditation hall, this one, full fuller than it is right now, about 125 people, ages 5 to 80. So amazing. And we'd have the little ones sit up front, where those of you up front are, so that you know they couldn't squirm too much or, or get up or run around the room, right? Five years old, six years old. And Ajahn Amar and I would be sitting up here, and, we, and Ajahn Amar would say things like, now it's time to meditate. Okay. Everybody close your eyes. And you know, little kids would be on like five Zafus piled up balancing. You know? <laughs> oh, they had nests too. And they were very attached to their nests. And they'd close their eyes and they kind of nestle down in their cushions. And Ajahn Omar would say things like, okay, we're going to do metta practice today. Why don't you bring a smile to your face? And everyone would smile. Close your eyes, smile. And then you say things like, move your smile to your left eyebrow. 
Let the left eyebrow smile. Go ahead. It's not cheating. We'll left, let our left eyebrow smile. And then he says something like, let your right pinky toe smile. Smiling pinky toe. And then he might say, let your belly smile. And then he might say, let your heart smile. And then he'd ring the bell, and in his British accent, he would say, very good, now we will go play. <laughs> and everyone would giggle, and we'd get up and we'd go play. You know? But my job with Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Pasana was an interesting one, because there I was, a lay woman in my mid-twenties. Um, they were um, venerable monastics. They've become even more esteemed since then. We've all grown a little older. And so my job was actually to corral them, to give them schedules and say, okay, you have exactly three minutes for that meditation and then we need a song or we're going to lose their interest. You know, it was my job to like, Achanamo, Achanamo, moving on, moving on, because he loved to talk, you know? So it was like my job to keep him on track. And we just developed this relationship that would have been impossible in other circumstances, where we held each other accountable equally and supported each other in a very complex dynamic of teaching and really learned to respect each other deeply. And later he became an important mentor to me in my uh, senior teacher training. Then there were the nuns. I would go up to Abayagiri, fearless mountain monastery in Mendocino, where they lived and practiced. And Ajahn Sadara was there practicing at that time and living there. I was like, well, who are these women practitioners? There's a lot of guys, monks, down this side of the room. Who is this nun? I want to get to know her. There are two nuns and a lot of monks. So I got to know her, and then later on still, um, this relationship developed between myself and Ayatataloka. And you might know Ayatataloka is the incredible, fully ordained bhikkhuni, American-born, who has been the preceptor for these next generations of new bhikkhunis, fully ordained women monastics. This is a reviving tradition as part of our lineage. And she's the most senior in America, and so she's been the preceptor, the one that's ordaining others. But to me, she's a dear friend. We share the same um, most important teacher. Oh, and so just growing up in the Dhamma with her. So just the different ways that we're touched by those that we interact with, and we don't even know who they're going to become. That's the point I'm trying to make didn't really know back then all of this. She wasn't being a preceptor back then. We were just friends in the Dharma, trying to, talking about concentration levels and open awareness and how to be skillful. And we develop these friendships in the Dharma and then they grow and they mature and they become something more and it's all kind of just unfolding. You know, and then later some of the greats like Ajahn Sumedho and... Suchito and such. So I'm sharing the personal story of the heart for me of lineage because we each have one. I could have actually shared with you a different lineage, like how, for example, I can feel the heartbeat of the practice of Mahasi Sayadaw, who taught... Sayada Upandita, who taught Sharon Salzberg Metta, who taught Sylvia Borstein Metta, who taught me Metta. I can feel that heartbeat. And I would guess that some of you feel heartbeats too, and it might not even be a Dharma lineage. It doesn't need to be a Dharma lineage. It's like, what is the thread of influences, seen and unseen, in our lives that have gotten us here? Such a mystery. So I'd like to share a map of practice um, from the Thai Force tradition. 
that was taught to me by my teacher. And then I practiced it for many, many years. I've been mentored in that map. And it might be helpful as a whole map, and it might just be helpful more thematically. You'll notice part of it, and you'll go, oh, I recognize that in my own experience. That's why maps are helpful. It's not like we're trying to place ourselves on the map and get it right. The maps are living. It's a fairly simple map. It only has four parts. It sounds pretty linear, but actually it's not. And the four parts are this. Sati, Mahasati, Satipanya, and Panyavimuti. What that means is Sati, mindfulness. Mahasati, great mindfulness. Satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. And Panyavimuti is the wisdom that leads to release, full release. So we'll play a little bit with this. And we'll start with sati. So sati is the world of objects and the knowing of objects. There was a question in the hall the other day about the Satipatthana Sutta, and the question was something um, like, Is the pure awareness, is the pure knowing, is the consciousness's unconditioned part of the Satipatthana Sutta? And the way that I would answer that is not directly in the form or the words of the Satipatthana Sutta, but absolutely in its essence. Every single ajahn that I'm connected with through the Thai Force tradition says, I teach Satipatthana Sutta. And part of that is this great, unbound awareness. So the world of sati is the world of objects. It's the world of, uh, you could say, the techniques of the Satipatthana Sutta. So I want to introduce you to another master, late master. And her name was Upasika Ki. And she was the foremost Thai woman teacher of the 20th century. There really weren't very many women teachers in Thailand in the 20th century. But she's one of the greats, a real inspiration to me, even though I never met her. And this is the book of her awakening and of her teachings. It's called Pure and Simple. So mindfulness. She says... Start out by brushing aside all external concerns and turn to look inside at your own mind until you know in what ways it is clear or murky, calm or unsettled. To do this, put mindfulness and alertness in charge as you keep aware of the body and mind until you've trained the mind to stay firmly in a state of normalcy or neutrality. That means non-reactivity. So she sets a really high bar. That's the first step. Just no reactivity, okay? That's why she inspires me so much. There's times when it's really, really helpful to titrate everything. And there's times when it's just shining forth really, really what's possible in a human life. So in the Four Noble Truths talk, I talked about the three insights, the insight of reflecting on each of the truths, uh, the insight of directly practicing each of the truths, and the insight of knowing what we know. This is from Ajahn Chah on just that teaching. First, one learns Dhamma, but one does not yet understand it. Then one understands, but has not yet practiced. One practices, but has not yet seen the truth of the Dhamma. Then one sees the Dhamma, but one's being has not yet become the Dhamma. So that's the first step. 
Ayatadaloka puts it like this. Not just to hear the teachings, but to learn how to do that with the body and heart. Feeling it deeply in the body, deeply in the body, down into the cells from a single thought, a single perception. We are only able to see the truth through what we have going on. So we just look and see. What is happening now? What is available to be known just now? So we have sati or mindfulness. Then we have mahasati, great mindfulness. So of course the obvious question is what makes that mindfulness great? So some other translations of this mahasati. Sustained mindfulness, pure awareness, pure knowing, or sometimes it's put mindfulness of emptiness itself. So when I say mindfulness of emptiness itself, what I mean is mindfulness or awareness of the absence of the solid and the separate. It doesn't mean there's nothing there. Everything is still appearing and disappearing according to a lawful unfolding, but it's not gluing together. It's empty of solid separate. So it's like a bowl, you know, it's like the bell, right? And the inside of the bell is empty. It's empty of anything solid, separate that we could particularly identify which is why in some traditions the metaphor of this empty awareness is it's like space. It's not space, it's a metaphor. But it's a close cousin that we can connect with in direct experience and start to be in the space where it isn't so solid and separate. And then we start to intermingle with something more that maybe we can't put a label on and maybe we don't need to put a label on it. So the great late master Ajahn Buddha Dasa put it like this, emptiness and mindfulness are one, not separate. Or this term in the Thai, um, puru, puru in the Thai. Ajahn Sumedho translates this term simultaneously both as consciousness but also as knowing, the person knowing, or we could say in the Ajahn Chah language, the one who knows. But that is very, very deceptive because it can reconcretize our misunderstanding that there's actually someone solid and separate that I have control over called me that's knowing something. And I've seen that a lot in the years with my teacher, that um, there's this great discernment that needs to happen between the Thai and the English. And that so often I would be receiving a teaching or asking a question, and it would come back in English, and I'd just kind of shake my head and go, huh? And I really learned to relax back in those moments of, huh? And not try to figure out conceptually whether it works or whether I can like try to make it work because it doesn't seem to work. And that there's actually an energy flowing in all of this that carries everything that needs, needs to be known. And that we can rest back on our own wisdom. That's really the invitation of this talk. Is to rest back in your own wisdom. Look and see for yourself. So it is true that in the Thai force tradition there is this blending, even in the language itself, uh, between the consciousness that is impermanent and the consciousness that is unborn. And that there aren't these precise distinctions made that are sometimes made, like in more of an Abhidhamma tradition or, or some of the Burmese lineages. And that's just how it is. And for some of us that works, and for some of us that doesn't work. And so we just rest where it works. 
So basically, great mindfulness, the mindfulness is maturing. It's stabilizing and it's growing. The view is getting wiser. Wise view isn't a single event, it's a verb, like most of these things in practice. It's getting wiser all the time. So how does that start to be experienced directly? A couple of examples. Direct experience. Sometimes you may notice, or me saying it might inspire you to check and see how this plays out in your own experience, that sometimes it's possible that in the continuous mindfulness and the maturing mindfulness, that the objects that we've been so committed to, the breath, the sounds, the body, the objects, the sense doors, actually start to relax. They start to relax into their, more their suchness, is how John was referring to it. So there's, there's an allowing quality in this. There's a yes quality in this. It's not a negation. But they start to relax. And the objects themselves start to almost like relax back into the background of attention. And as they start to relax into the background of attention, something else is in the foreground of attention. And sometimes that something else is that which knows the object. And within that knowing that knows all of the arising and the passing and the flickers, as that knowing itself is nurtured in attention, it starts to become more mature, it starts to get more wise in its essence. We cannot make this happen, as far as I can tell. (laughs) And it's like everything extra just starts to relax out. All the extra efforting, all the extra me that isn't needed, all those little flickers of the defilements and the wanting and the not wanting start to relax. All starts to relax. So it's emptying out of this extra solid separate. So we can actually practice with that. We can actually train with that. And it's a foreground, background practice. And only we can know in the art of meditation when it is skillful to say, hey, breath is an object right there in the foreground. Very, very important to stabilize attention with this object, with mindfulness. And when there's enough momentum that the mindfulness is actually becoming great and we don't need to so much that way, it can just start to relax. And the knowing can come to the foreground. And it's a background, foreground, background, foreground. And here's the thing. It's small moments many times. This isn't really a samadhi practice. It's small moments many times. So if we try to like fixate or stabilize this awareness in the same way we might try to fixate or stabilize concentration, not that that really works when we're trying hard either, um, it, it's, it colors it. It's like the lens is now colored with a subtle defilement. So it's small moments many times, but what we're starting to move into is the timeless. And so it doesn't matter that in relative time it was a small moment because it's actually timeless. There's also a way energetically, um, and this is the way that I was taught, it's, it's a little nuanced, that we can actually start to bring awareness up And some of you have been sharing in the check-ins, you just, you know, kind of with some delight, a few of you have been sharing, like, noticing all of a sudden, huh, interesting. The peripheral vision through the eye sense door is actually more predominant and more available than what's right in front of me. Normally, what's right in front of me is more predominant through the eye sense door. There's something about when this awareness starts to mature that something opens up. I don't want to talk about it particularly in terms of the head because what I see 
when I'm um, working with people in this particular practice of sati, maha sati, sati panya, panya vimuti, is it can really easily get head e. It's not about head e, but it's something about the energy starts to arise, the awareness starts to rise and open, and we can actually relax the muscles around the eyes, even with the eyes closed, and let that sense of awareness open. For some people, it's even kind of like a sound. And Ajahn Amaru and Ajahn Sumedho describe that as the nada sound, the sound of silence. It's not really a sound. Again, can't make it happen. So the way that my teacher would talk about it is it's like allowing the awareness to move up and then if it starts to kind of fall down into the chitta, remember Oren was talking about the chitta, this mind heart, and in Thailand, somebody says, my mind, they point to their heart. It's not separate. Um, that there's a, there can be a lot moving in here that's a lot more complicated. So there's a way that we just keep it buoyant. Keep it buoyant. But we can't hold it up there either because guess what? The defilements are part of the awareness. And here's the even better news. The awareness does not care one bit what's there to be aware of. That's the best news ever. Everything's available to be known in that awareness, completely non-preferential. Best news ever means that you can be you and I can be I and it's all okay. So don't worry about that second practice if it's confusing. I actually teach whole retreats just on that. Um, so we have sati, mahasati, satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. And this is where we come back to the satipatthana sutta, right? Because we have the objects, and then we have actually what we're cultivating in the depths of the mind in terms of insight through the Satipatthana Sutta practice. And those are the insights, yet again, into the three characteristics of existence. Everything is changing. Everything conditioned is inherently unsatisfactory. It's not personal. We'll go back to Pasika Ki. Once the mind can stay in a state of normalcy, you'll see mental fabrications and preoccupations in their natural state of arising and disbanding. The mind will be empty, neutral, and still, neither pleased nor displeased, and will see physical and mental phenomena as they arise and disband naturally of their own accord. At this point in the retreat, we're each moving in and out of cycles of re-solidification on subtle or very obvious levels and dissolving. And it's moving in cycles. The key, as far as I see it, is when we move into these cycles where things are feeling more unsatisfactory, like there's a point in our practice here that sometimes happens where there's enough sense of being in harmony with the changing nature of things at whatever level we're being with the changing nature of things that when things start to feel a little bit more solid, it just doesn't feel quite right. It feels unsatisfactory. And the interesting thing about that is it can also feel quite comfortable and quite familiar. But there's something else going on in us and we go, "Mm, comfortable, familiar, but something is just not quite satisfactory the way that it once felt. No, this over-solidification. 
So I'm going to go back to a, a single line from this quote that John used from Ajahn Mahaboa about the vanishing. I have to say, every time I hear that whole quote on the vanishing, I just get chills every time. And, and John uses it a lot, and John and I teach together a lot. And every time, I just get chills. I didn't bring the whole quote, just a little piece. This vanishes, that vanishes, but that which knows their vanishing doesn't vanish. All that remains is simple awareness, utterly pure. So, if everything is stable and unreliable, how can it be real, right? Appearances, yes. Engagement with appearances, yes. Skillful, appropriate engagement with appearances. Because we know that we don't have to buy into the story of any of it. And so then, whatever's arising, whether it's individual, our families, our communities, this planet, we know. And so we can respond. And we have so much more energy available to us to respond because the reactivity and all the energy bound in the reactivity and confusion isn't there. We have boundless energy available to respond. It's a beautiful thing. Dukkha. Pasika key. Mindfulness and discernment are tools for knowing ourselves, for testing ourselves, so we won't be careless or complacent, oblivious to the fact that suffering is basically what life is all about. The point is something we really have to comprehend so that we can live without being oblivious. The pains and discontent that fill our bodies and minds show us the truths of inconstancy, stress, and not selfness within us. If you contemplate what's going on inside right down to the details, you'll see the truths that appear within and without, all of which come down to inconstancy, stress, and not-selfness. But the delusion that's basic to our nature will see everything wrong as constant, easeful, and self, and so make us live obliviously even though there's nothing to guarantee how long our lives will last. And that's an insight I've used in my own practice when things are just getting a little bit too complicated inside and I'm getting a little bit too caught up in it all. The real, real question outside of my own comfort level and how I'm right, and how it's going, it's like, well, do I really know that I'm going to get another breath? Do I really know that I'm going to get another day of life? And there's times when that question just pops the entire bubble. Like, forget it, it's just not worth feeding. And there's other times when that wouldn't be a skillful thing to bring in because it could actually lower our state of mind into despair in a despair that isn't helpful. So that's the art of meditation again. Anatta, not self. This is from Ajahn Jimnian, another Thai forest master connecting vision and insight. And so he's talking about the Eightfold Path and how two kinds of seeing come together in the Noble Eightfold Path. The kind of seeing that produces vision and the kind of seeing that produces insight. Vision penetrates into the nature of anicca, dukkha, and anatta and does not attach to any experience as me or mine. Insight is the penetrating wisdom that sees through to emptiness. So we have two things going on that are intermingling. There. 
And this piece of skillfulness with the three characteristics is really important. And so I wanted to share a short teaching from um, Ajahn Chitindra, who is another um, Western nun out of the Thai Force tradition. She says, in practicing to see clearly the nature of our experience as impermanent, unsatisfactory, a certain amount of delusion and dukkha drops away naturally. Insight arises. Other areas come into focus where we see that more skill and effort is required to break the shackles. With wisdom, we should develop means that help us free ourselves. So how do we do that? There's a lot of ways we can do that. And we're exploring them. I'm just going to mention one more. So again, this is a practice of the great mindfulness, the Mahasati. And it's bringing this Mahasati, this mature mindfulness, this pure awareness to the moment that we have talked about so many times on this retreat, to the moment of Vedana itself, the feeling tone with the sense contact. Right? So there's a sense door and there's a sense contact. And there's this moment of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, which then quickly proliferates if that moment is not just seen but actually cut through because the habituation is so strong to move into liking and disliking right away. It's not our fault. It's a strong, strong habit. And so this is where uh, my teacher would uh, often, he'd be teaching, it'd be in Thai, the translation hadn't come through yet, but all I would hear over and over is, da-da-da-da-da, sati-mahasati, da-da-da-da-da, sati-mahasati, da-da-da-da-da-da, sati-mahasati. We need mindfulness and we need great mindfulness. The mindfulness to see that moment of feeling tone and the great mindfulness to actually cut through. Now, the word cut through um, can sound a little bit violent to me anyway, at times, in my practice it has. It's often used in the tradition, I'm not sure why. But another way of looking at the same thing is like permeating that solid cycle of habituation with something else that actually dissolves that thread of habituation on the spot. In another tradition, it would be called liberation upon arising. Something arises and the force of the mindfulness emptiness itself liberates it in the moment of arising. This is some of the potential of what we're doing here. And so, really what we can do is just, as we're tracking the Vedna, as we've been doing off and on, off and on, and it's like we can stop right there. Upasaka Ki would put it like this. She would say, stop, look, and let go. Stop, look, and let go. And then I was reflecting on a little practice that I have, um, which is a very allowing practice, which is called, it's not cheating to hit rewind. What do I mean by that? There's a sense door, there's an object, there's a consciousness, boom, a moment of contact, and immediately glued together right after that moment of contact is a moment of Vedana, and it's not quite known, and then there's the moment of liking or disliking or spacing out, and that is known. It is not cheating to hit rewind and go, oh, all that happened was a moment of contact to sense doors. It was unpleasant. We hit rewind, we're right back there. As far as I can tell in my own practice, it counts because it's liberating, right? <laughs> as long as it's liberating. My own teacher gave me a practice once for a whole year. And he said to me, okay, we're not going to see each other for a year. Here's your practice. In all activities, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, every single activity, all I want you to do is this. Notice the mind of liking and disliking or notice the feeling tone and stop right there. Cut out that cycle of habituation with mahasati. 
all activities. And he said, I know Vedana is really hard, so it's really fine to just cut out at liking and disliking, because you are living a life after all. I said, thanks, appreciate that. This is a very intense practice. All activities. Whole life for a year. And so we can move forward, we can move backward, it's okay to hit rewind. I was thinking about one time when I was practicing a bit of Bayagiri. And I was about to do a period of practice in the woods, and, and up there they have these wonderful kutis, cabins, where you can sit. And these beautiful walking paths that were, you know, carved out of the poison oak, so much poison oak, um, by hand. And you walk back and forth, about 30 paces in the forest. Sometimes you hear the crunch of a leaf of another monastic near you also doing their walking. And I said to him, give me a practice, just anything, whatever you think might be inspiring for me. (laughs) He said, okay. He said, I'll give you the practice that was given to me. What I didn't know at the time was that this very practice was given to him by Ajahn Sumedho. And that very practice was given to Ajahn Sumedho by Ajahn Chah. And that very practice, I think, that Ajahn Chah pulled from some of the words of the Buddha. We're keeping these teachings alive through our practice. The words might change a little. The emphasis might change a little. We're keeping them alive. It's a living tradition. So what he, he said, I want you to reflect on this in all postures. The Dhamma is to be found neither in moving forwards or moving backwards or in standing still. This is your place of non-abiding. The Dhamma is to be found neither in moving forwards or moving backwards or standing still. This is your place of non-abiding. And before the conceptual mind jumps in, as mine did, what? (laughs) There is a pause. And in that pause, the knowing can shine forth. And it's not about the amount of time. Sati, Mahasati, Sati Panya, Panya Vimuti. Panyavimuti is the wisdom that leads to release. Any kind of release, although traditionally it's release. All releases count. And so I wanted to share with you the awakening story of Opasaka Ki. It's been a great inspiration to me in my own practice. Sabe Dhamma Anatta. One night I was sitting in meditation in the open air, my back straight as an arrow, firmly determined not to make the mind quiet, but even after a long time it wouldn't settle down. So I thought, I've been working at this for many days now and yet my mind won't settle down at all. It's time to stop being so determined and simply be aware of the mind." I started to take my hands and feet out of the meditation posture, but at the moment I had unfolded one leg, but had yet to unfold the other. I could see that my mind was like a pendulum, swinging more and more slowly, more and more slowly, until it stopped. Stopped. 
Then there arose an awareness that was sustained by itself. Slowly I put my legs and hands back into position. At the same time, the mind was in a state of awareness absolutely and solidly still, seeing clearly into the elementary phenomenon of existence as they arose and disbanded, changing in line with their nature, and also seeing a separate condition inside, with no arising, no disbanding, no changing, a condition beyond birth and death, something very difficult to put clearly into words because it was a realization of the elementary phenomena of nature, completely internal and individual. After a while, I slowly got up and lay down to rest. This state of mind remained there as a stillness that sustained itself deep down inside. Eventually, the mind came out of this state and gradually returned to normal. But she said that actually something had fundamentally changed and never did return to the habitual conditions baseline of normal. This is possible. This is possible for us. And so the wisdom that leads to release, it's like what's being released, right? The senses are being released. The aggregates are being released. What are they being released from? What's being released is the glue. What's the glue? The clinging, the craving that's holding it all together in its solid, separate suchness. And it can disband. It can be released. It can be freed. So whether the wisdom that leads to release is a simple release or the most profound releases possible where the actual roots of the defilements start to loosen and be uprooted, that's not the end of the story, right? It's like Upasaka Key's story is an archetypal story and it's not at all uncommon for before a moment of release, any kind of release, that there'll be this cycle where it starts to feel like it's all going wrong somehow. She said, my mind just won't stay still, I was trying so hard. It's not at all uncommon for over-efforting to happen at that point. It's a misguided attempt to come back to balance. Her story is so archetypal. And it's like there are times here when we just have to trust our practice, that we're not in control of it, that it's doing itself. And then it starts to dissolve, and something else starts to shine forth, and it could be known. It releases what it releases, and then the mind returns to normal. And there's this entire process of integrating a new normal that can take years and years and years, or not so long. And the next talk that I'm going to give is actually an entire talk on that process, one map of that process of how we integrate our insights the ahas and the moments of release on every level because it is such an important path of practice. It doesn't end at the release. It begins at the release. So I'll end with one of my favorite quotes from Ajahn Sumedho. Awareness. Awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change and emotional change. Stay with that because it's a refuge that's indestructible. It's not something that changes. 
It's a refuge you can trust in. This refuge is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical and simple, but easily overlooked or not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice it's like this. It's just like this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.